often when I used to think of Bigfoots and UFOs, the offspring hit, come out and play, comes to mind. You gotta keep them separated. Bigfoot researchers are passionate people, as are the UFO community, and when you suggest to them that there is a bit of a connection between these two topics, they tend to get a little angry. I've heard meltdowns on podcasts about this specific topic. It's it's truly extraordinary to see sometimes. Uh, but they're there, and you can't ignore them. No matter how little they make up the uh, casework of uh, you know Bigfoot and UFO cases, you can't ignore the connections. In the last episode, Jordan Heath and I made the case for the anomalous Bigfoot. While these cases, again, represent the minority of all Bigfoot cases, there is enough here to suggest that, uh, in some cases, there definitely is a connection. The 1970s produced a distinct flavor of Sasquatch, one that could be found in nationwide headlines in states like Arkansas, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and New York. Often these sightings would be accompanied by other anomalous events like UFOs, strange voices, and odd smells. 1972 was a year riddled with both. In a commentary for the North American Newspaper Alliance, Keel wrote, Harry Monsters Eclipse Comeback by UFOs. Quote, After a three-year lull, with comparatively few flying saucers being reported, the Little Green Men attempted a comeback this year. But a seven-foot hairy monster with a serious perspiration problem walked away with most of the publicity. End quote. Today we're going to be talking about the summer of Sasquatch, the year that everyone took notice of the big hairy guy that traipsed around the woods, was synonymous with bad smells, and was occasionally followed by anomalous lights in the sky. Welcome, everyone, to the Our Strange Skies podcast. The Missouri Monster, or Momo, was the dominant Bigfoot story of 1972. The story of that hairy, pumpkin-headed monster made such a splash that it drew MUFON to Louisiana, Missouri to investigate the infamous cryptid. What makes the story of Momo and other Bigfoot-like cryptid tales of 1972 unique is their association with other anomalous phenomena. As Lyle Blackburn wrote in his book, Momo, The Strange Case of the Missouri Monster, quote, The Momo case file is one that spans many aspects of strange phenomenon, which makes it all the more interesting. Along with the Bigfoot angle, there was an associated wave of incidents involving bizarre lights in the skies and woods. Disembodied voices and other odd occurrences were also reported, as Momo-like entities appeared not only in the town of Louisiana, but at other points along the Mississippi River Basin. The more I researched, the more I realized, as usual, there was more to the story than I ever imagined." End quote. The arrival of Momo really began in the summer of 1971. 
Joan Mills and Mary Ryan were driving south on Highway 79, headed for St. Louis, Missouri. At around noon, they decided to stop off at a turnout that was just north of Louisiana. It was a scenic area, populated by forests and hills on the edge of the Mississippi River, and the two women proceeded to have a picnic. As Mary and Joan began to eat, a nauseating smell moved into the area. At first, Joan suggested it was coming from a family of skunks, but the more they smelled it, the more they realized that this was something else. Still, curiosity got the best of Joan, who pushed into the thicket slightly. Joan pointed in horror at a creature moving through the tall grass. It was fairly tall itself, its head poking up through the weeds staring at the two women. The women described the creature as resembling a rather large primate in many respects. Its face was very human, though. The creature was covered completely in red hair. It had long arms that hung below their knees. These details became clearer the closer the creature came to them. Both women recalled how the creature made a gurgling sound at them. Terrified, they quickly jumped up and ran to their car, where they locked themselves inside. In her haste, Joan left the keys in her purse, which was still sitting on the picnic table with their abandoned lunch, which, that's a problem. That's a big problem. The women watched in fear as the creature approached the vehicle, placing its hands on the hood, moving toward the car door. Joan hit the car horn. The creature jumped back, startled. Joan continued to lay on the horn, which caused the creature to continue its retreat. The being turned its attention to the picnic table. In one gulp, they picked up a sandwich and consumed it. After the table was cleared of all food, the creature picked up Joan's purse for a moment, examining it in its hands, and tossing it aside and disappearing back into the brush. Joan and Mary waited desperately for a few moments, until they felt it was safe enough to retrieve her purse and get the hell out of there. They pulled back onto Highway 79, passing through Louisiana, putting the town in their rearview mirror quickly. Once they arrived safely in St. Louis, they filed an official report with the Missouri State Highway Patrol. The officers quickly dismissed it, having received no other reports, and since sandwich crimes are not high priority for state patrol. Again, it's an egregious crime, but is it investigation worthy? Is there a sandwich police even? I think there should be, you know, investigating crimes in the fridges across corporate America. One year later, though, in July of 1972, the creature would return. On the afternoon of July 11th, eight-year-old Terry Harrison and his five-year-old brother Wally were playing in their backyard, which was the last house on a dead-end road. Their house was opposite Marzoff Hill, an area of dense woods. The two brothers heard the animal before they smelled it. It was a throaty growl, like nothing they had ever heard before. After a few seconds, a large figure made its presence known and it was only 15 feet away from them. It was tall, with long black hair, a pumpkin-sized head, and now they smelled the characteristic foul odor. 
On its fur were splatters of red, which looked like blood, possibly from the dead dog that it was carrying in one arm. At least they think it was a dead dog. The boys quickly ran inside and frantically explained to their 15-year-old sister, Doris, what they had seen. And she quickly ran to the window and stood, terrified at the large, hulking shape running into the woods. Quote, it was six or seven feet tall, she explained. Black and hairy. It stood like a man, but it didn't look like one. End quote. Immediately, she locked the doors and called her mother, fearful that the creature might return. Her father arrived home 30 minutes later to a fearful household. After calming his children, he went into the backyard to search for this creature. And instead, what he found was an area of flattened brush, 50 feet from their house, and faint footprints that appeared to have black hairs around them. Terry went on to describe the creature having long black hair that covered its face and that, quote, it was weaving back and forth, end quote. There was a little bit of doubt as to what the creature was holding. While the Harrison boys did say that it looked like a dog, their father, Edgar, wondered if it was actually another creature just like itself and that maybe there was a family in the area. So let's speculate on that for one moment. One of the defining features of quote-unquote southern Bigfoot is that they're aggressive, more so than your northern varieties. Everything about them is aggressive. Their behavior, their attitudes towards women having picnics, etc. But if it is holding one of its own kind, is it possible that it could have been shot and killed by a hunter? or killed by some other means. It's kind of worth speculating on a little bit, but that's one aspect of this case that really made me wonder if it is carrying another of its kind, was it killed? The idea of it being a dog also has shades of the Mothman. As we talked about on our 65 to 67 series, John Keel reported that a lot of neighborhood dogs went missing during the time that the Mothman appeared in the Ohio Valley. There is the story of Bandit, Earl Partridge's dog, who went missing in a swirl of red circling lights. And then there is the story that the Mallets and Scarberries told about a dog being spotted on the side of the road, disappearing not long after, heading back in the direction that they had encountered the Mothman. On the same afternoon, a woman named Miss Lee, who lived a block and a half away from the Harrison home, claimed that she had heard growling sounds that same afternoon. She claimed that it was, quote, carrying on something terrible, end quote. Robert Parsons and his wife later told the Louisiana Press Journal that they had heard the sounds, too. And a nearby farmer claimed that a dog he'd given to his daughter had been missing for about a week. Strangely, following the incident, one of the Harrison's dogs became violently ill, causing them to vomit for hours. Later that night, at around 1.30 in the morning, Edgar woke to the sounds of popping brush as if something were running through the woods. He roused four of his neighbors to search, but they found nothing. The next night he enlisted eight after noises were heard on Marzoff Hill. But again, the hunting party came up empty-handed. On 
On Friday, July 14th, three days after the Harrison sighting, the Harrison family was hosting the weekly prayer meeting at their house, which included 30 people from the Pentecostal church. At around 9 p.m., most attendees had gone home. Edgar was standing outside talking to 12 of the remaining guests. All 12 saw numerous balls of light in the sky, moving from east to west, just over the nearby hills. A pair of green and white lights were spotted descending near the school. The baffled congregants soon left, and Edgar Harrison decided to head outside and strum his guitar a little. Intermixed with his own melody, he could hear a loud growl moving closer and closer. Were they asking Edgar Harrison to play choice cuts from Neil Young's Harvest? Can't completely rule that out, can we? It was so loud that the rest of the family heard it and came outside. While Edgar wanted to stay, the rest of the family didn't, so they piled into their car and drove off. Well, they didn't make it that far. When, quote, over 40 people were coming toward my house, some of them carrying guns. They had heard the same noise we did, end quote. That's pretty fascinating. Like, I understand that Louisiana, Missouri is small, but 40 people heard this growl. Were they all gathered on the same street, or were they scattered about their own homes? I'd have to think it was the latter, which makes it interesting. Is like, if this is anomalous Bigfoot, can it just, like, project its voice wherever it wants all around town? Like, that, that's... It's fascinating. It's terrifying. And I'm, I'm a little freaked out by it. Um, yeah. But it wasn't just the growl. Many of them had seen the glowing balls, too. Just then, Mrs. Harrison yelled out that something was coming, and everyone fled down the street. Edgar Harrison and a woman named Maxine Minor both phoned the police to report everything. They dispatched officers John Whitaker and Jerry Floyd, but their search turned up nothing. Not satisfied, Edgar and several of his neighbors took off to Marzoff Hill in search of this creature. They searched the area and came upon a dilapidated old house in the woods. The interior reeked of, quote, moldy horse smell or garbage smell, end quote. They assumed that this must be where the creature dwelled. Still, they pressed on. The search was difficult due to the thick underbrush, but they failed to turn up any sign of the creature. You'd have to assume that this underbrush slowed it down, but it, it never seemed to. Edgar decided that that was enough. The family slept in the restaurant that they owned in town, waiting for these sightings to end. That was the straw that broke the camel's back, and who could blame them? Their house was becoming a hotspot for all of this. A witness by the name of Pat Howard came forward and claimed that they saw a dark, man-like figure walk across the road not far from Marzoff Hill at about 5 in the morning. On July 18th, two boys were hiking through Marzoff Hill when they came upon the creature. A retching smell hit their nostrils before the creature growled at them. The two boys bolted and reported what they had seen to the police, saying that it resembled a bear. Another woman told a local TV station that she had seen a, quote, black, long-haired thing 
across the highway leading into Louisiana. This creature's just all over this town. Just hanging out for a while. Marzoff Hill was fast becoming a hot spot. Reports ranging from odd smells to strange growls and thrashing creatures. Police Chief Shelby Ward was becoming a bit concerned because he felt that things could get deadly in this panic-stricken town. So he decided to organize a search party of his own. On July 19th, 20 men, including eight police officers, State Conservation Officer Gus Artis, Edgar Harrison, and four reporters from out of state headed into the woods of Marzoff Hill to search for anything they could link to the creature. They searched the hill for three hours to the cheers and guffaws of nearby landowners. The next day, Edgar Harrison, his daughter Doris, and her boyfriend Richard Bliss staked out the house, waiting to see if something would happen. At 9.30 p.m., a reporter for the Irish Times, Richard Crow, was escorted to the Harrison residence, and after catching up, they escorted him up the hill. Quote, within a short distance, they came to the remains of an old garbage dump, which looked to have been recently disturbed. They could see tin cans and bottles which had been dug up and strewn about. Nearby, Harrison pointed out a spot where the graves of two dogs had also been dug up. Their bones were scattered everywhere. As they progressed, the hill became steeper and a and landscape wider with dense trees and tangled brush. Eventually, the men came upon what appeared to be two impressions in the ground. The first was over ten inches long and five inches wide, and resembled a large human footprint. The other was five inches long and curved, like the print of a hand. Given the dry, hard soil surface... Crow estimated it would take a minimum of 200 pounds of pressure to create such impressions, end quote. Next, Crow was escorted to the abandoned shack where a pile of leaves were discovered in one corner. It was while they were examining this area that the Harrison's dog suddenly ran off. The nauseous odor appeared once again, and several dogs began to bark furiously. Armed with cameras and guns, they went out, waiting for the creature to appear. But they never did. And everything quieted down. Here's just a random thought I had. What if the smell is... Um, not necessarily the Bigfoot. Oh, maybe it is. But what if it's smell of the portal what if portals actually smelled what if quantum leap was the smelliest goddamn tv show ever and nobody knew it so in that way it kind of paints a more anomalous picture so you know if you're not into that uh i'm, I'm sure i'm i'm making it a little worse but you kind of got to you kind of got to think outside the box here. There's anomalous lights. Um, there's, you know, strange smells. There's going to be some other factors coming up here that are very, very weird. Um, and yeah, we're just, we're going all in on this. Got to go all in on this. A few days later, 
The summer of the Squatch continued. Ellis Miner, an old fisherman, was sitting in front of his house on the evening of July 21st. His dog started to growl, a rare event for this old bird dog. Miner took up a flashlight and aimed it in the area the dog was looking. Quote, I shone a light. Right there, about 20 feet up the road, it was standing there. Hair as black as coal. I couldn't see its eyes or face. It had hair nearly down to its chest, end quote. The thing was at least six feet tall, with hair that covered its entire body. It stood upright on two legs in the center of the road. Quote, as soon as I threw the light on it, it whirled and took off. It's the first time I ever seen an ugly-looking thing like that, end quote. The being ran off at the sight of the light, crossed the adjacent railroad track, and into the woods, on July 29th, things would get very weird. Edgar Harrison and some local college students were up on Marzoff Hill, toward the top, when they heard what sounded like a gunshot from down below. They proceeded down to the area and heard a distinct voice say, You boys stay out of these woods. It was the voice of an old man and seemed to come from a group of trees nearby. When they searched the area, they found nothing and no one. So, again, uh, apparently anomalous Bigfoot can throw its voice. That's weird. On August 1st, eight miles south of town, mysterious footprints were discovered on the property of Freddie Robbins. Whoever made them haven't had an ovular foot with long, thin toes. Two days later... More footprints were discovered on the property of Mr. and Mrs. Siddharth to the northwest of town. That morning, their dogs were scared of something. A high-pitched howl rattled the walls of their home. Mr. Siddharth grabbed a flashlight, looking for what had made that sound. Instead, he found a series of footprints in his garden, but none leading to or away from the garden. The surrounding ground was soft, as there had been a rain the day before, so there should have been tracks leading to and away from the garden, but there were none. These tracks were of the three-toed variety, as reported in most Bigfoot cases. On the afternoon of August 4th, four boys, including two of the Harrisons, Fred, who was 10, and Lewis, 13, along with Ernest Shade, 16, and Rosie Shade, 7, were fishing at around 4 p.m. when Ernest noticed a dark form in the water. They assumed it was nothing, but noticed that it was moving against the current. Whatever it was, it had a large head, shoulders that were sticking up out of the water. His first instinct said bear, but they couldn't be sure. Regardless, they moved out of the area quickly, and I would too. Um, also, this feels like, you know... A Bigfoot Rambo moment, you know, Rambo's head peeking up out of, the, out of the water, looking. It feels very much like that. Even the local airport was on high alert. Um, someone reported a sighting of the creature near uh, their private airfield. And in response, the FAA instructed airport officials to be on the lookout for a strange creature or any sort of unidentified object. Um an interesting um, that's an interesting call there 
It was only a matter of weeks before press coverage of Momo, the Missouri monster, spread into national papers like the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, and the Chicago Tribune. And with it came the monster hunters and the tourists, dead set to find the creature. A group of Navy men were among the hunters, along with dozens of others from neighboring states. The local businesses didn't shy away from capitalizing on the creature's reputation with sales and specials of all kinds. The police tried to discourage as many people as possible from going up to Marzoff Hill. This is a quote from Blackburn's book again. Quote, Not all of the would-be monster seekers could be sent off so easily, however. Dozens of armed men were already swarming Marzoff Hill and the surrounding woods, ready to shoot anything which looked remotely big and hairy. In the process, they trespassed on private property, trampled crops, and broke down fences. Shots rang out from the woods at all hours, and residents could only wonder if they'd shot the creature. Somebody's livestock, or worse, somebody. On one occasion, two hunters mistook a bull for the monster and shot it dead. The owner was furious and called the police, but there was little the chief, that Chief Ward could do since there was no way of knowing which of the errant monster hunters was responsible. End quote. This was such a concern that Chief Ward shut down access to the mountain to everyone. Of those that came to investigate the creature was Hayden C. Hughes and Daniel Garcia of the International UFO Bureau. They were of the theory that this creature was not a cryptid, but an extraterrestrial. They were among the few granted access to Marsoff Hill. The pair ended up spending the night on it, though it was a pretty quiet one for them. They didn't really hear anything or see anything. Hughes was interviewed by United Press International and a local TV station out of Columbia, Missouri. He was the first to state that the creature had glowing orange eyes, which hadn't been reported to this point, and stated that the creature, quote, could be connected with creatures from outer space, end quote. And with that, a new element to the case was introduced. Nobody during this time ever reported that this creature had any kind of eye shine, or anything, which is unique because in in a lot of Bigfoot cases, there seems to be eye shine is a is an element of it. It's something that's reported over and over again, but this time that's not the case. The publicity of Momo brought with it additional reports of hairy creatures in Missouri. First and foremost, the Joan Mills and Mary Ryan story came to light as did a corresponding report from around the same time. One family from Louisiana reported that their son had seen a big, tall, dark creature near an abandoned school building in July of 1971. A pair of witnesses even reported their sightings to MUFON, which is not unusual. There are people that report their sightings, their Bigfoot sightings to MUFON. Two men, identified as Tim and VM were fishing on the evening of June 30th, 1972, two weeks before the Harrison boys' encounter. While casting poles in the nearby river, they noticed something waiting in the middle of it that was quite large in her suit. The first thought, oddly, 
went to a hippie. You know, I get it. Summer of Love, a few years earlier, kind of, you know, just hippies wading in water, I guess. Um, you know, it was really the long hair that did it just kind of, yeah, it's, it's a weird thought. Now, then they realized that this creature was walking across the river and it was, it was much bigger. It was much taller. It waded with ease through five and a half foot water. The creature emerged from the water and proceeded in their direction, oblivious to them being there at all. Tim had scrambled up the hillside to avoid being seen first, but when the creature was 150 feet away or so, VM scrambled up, as did the tree, as did the creature trying to get away from him. Interestingly, a couple fishing upstream heard some odd grunts and groans from something that appeared to be hurt, and they too ran for it. Both groups reported their sightings to the local state park rangers. The ranger on duty accompanied Tim and VM back to the area to retrieve their fishing gear, and they discovered large three-toed footprints. This sighting brought MUFON to the area as well. Walt Andrus and John Schusler took a particular interest in this case. The river is kind of located uh, approximately 30 miles from Louisiana. I think it's the Couvray River. At least that's how it looks to be spelled. Uh, additional reports came in from Foley and New Haven as well. One of the most startling reports came from a dairy farmer named Wendorf. In the fury of the hunt, one of his bulls had been shot by a monster hunter just outside of Louisiana. The farmer claimed that prior to the Harrison sighting, he was awakened by his dogs early one morning. It was unusual for them as they slept on the front porch each night and weren't prone to barking like that. When Wendorf went to the door and opened it, his dogs immediately cowered at his feet, afraid of something out there. The moment he stepped outside, Wendorf walked into an eerie silence. There was an odd odor resembling firecrackers, too. In the hazy morning sun, he could see a large, dark, humanoid figure bounding across the field, shuffling strangely to the river. There's a lot of anomalous aspects with this particular one. The kind of Oz effect that he experienced when he opened up the door, that, that silence, as if all sound had been sucked out of uh, out of the area. Um, smell of firecrackers, too, is interesting. Wendorf didn't like people on his property, so he fumbled with a gun. But upon returning, you know, the creature was gone. He later found some footprints near the river. Uh, the creature was odd, and he had an odd way of describing it. It was, quote, something partway between a great big man in a fur overcoat, a bear walking on its hind legs, and a sort of gorilla-like thing, end quote. In 2001, a man named Bill Riley told the St. Louis Post-Dispatch that he had been chased by a tall creature with matted hair on July 15, 1972, four days after the Harrison Boys' encounter. Riley and a friend had gone to a party in a rural area of Pike County. The party turned out to be a bust, but on the way back, Riley got a whiff of something just terribly awful. 
A foul stench, which is very familiar to this story by now. In the tree line next to the road, he could see that someone was following him. He assumed it to be a farmer, though he wondered what a farmer was doing out this late. You know, maybe he's a little protective of his property. Um, you know. The thought was dashed by a, quote, god-awful blood-curdling scream, end quote. Riley stopped, and so did the, quote-unquote, farmer. He ran faster, and so did this figure, matching his movements exactly. The farmer finally broke from the wood line. Only it wasn't a farmer anymore, but an eight-foot-tall humanoid covered in matted hair. The creature pursued Riley over a four-foot-tall wire fence, vaulting it in with no problem. He eventually ran into the yard of the farmer he had assumed was chasing him and furiously pounded on his door. The farmer wouldn't let him in, but thankfully the creature turned back, chased by the farmer's dogs. This is the first instance of the creature kind of really fully being the aggressor. Like, again, these creatures are kind of aggressive in their own way, but they, it seems uh, for, like, uh, these sightings, uh, that creature is more defensive in many ways. Um, like, you're encroaching upon its location and stuff. Um Everything that Momo has done to this point has been defensive. Fleeing the scene, trying to get away. Perhaps Riley was just too close to its hunting grounds. Or again, maybe this creature was tending to an injured one. Or had a family nearby. Or maybe they were just pursuing Bill for fun, which is terrifying. It's hard to speculate on the lives of young Bigfoots, but it's not completely uncharacteristic given Joan Mills and Mary Ryan's uh, encounter in the summer of 1971. Maybe at Fuda. Other locales have Missouri had seen UFO reports as, as well, as did a few other states, such as Arkansas, Illinois, and Indiana. In July of 1972, a young man named Randy Emmert told the Perkin Daily Times that he had seen a Bigfoot-like creature on two occasions since May. The hair on Emmett's creature was white, but the sound the creature made was eerie. He described it as, quote, a long screech, kind of like an old steam engine whistle, only more human, end quote. That's not terrifying at all. Years later, he told the paper that he and his friends made the whole thing up to scare another friend who worked nights at a gas station. And yet, while Randy's story may be bogus, there were over a hundred reports that summer of similar-looking creatures. In fact, Tazewell County had received so many calls that the locals dubbed it the Coal Hollow Road Monster, or Cahomo. That is a name. This creature seemed different, though, and reports of the creature more closely resembled mischaracterizations of Yeti, such as white fur, red mouth, and intimidating teeth. On July 27th, a woman reported that she had seen a similar creature picking berries near an old coal mine. And I think what's interesting here is that um, throughout Blackburn's book, 
There are references to old mines um, in Bigfoot sightings. Uh, there are in um, some of the other stories that I'll bring up, too. In Peoria, a report of odd lights in the sky was followed by sightings of a hairy humanoid. An unidentified man reported one evening that he had seen some strange lights that left a vapor trail descend behind some trees. This was followed by two separate reports from citizens who saw something that, quote, looked like a cross between an ape and a caveman, end quote. Rochdale, Indiana was another hot spot for Bigfoots and UFOs. Just outside of town, Mr. and Mrs. Rogers rented a farm. Early one evening in August, she stepped out into the rain to roll up the windows of the family car. She stood in the darkness briefly, hearing a growl that sounded like something saying, Boo. She dismissed it at first. Odd sounds being normal out in the country, she was carrying her infant son Keith in her arms. Then she heard it again. It was deep, but sounded human-like. She felt like someone was watching her too, but she never saw anything that night. An hour and a half before this incident, a bright object had hovered over a cornfield adjacent to the Rogers' property. Witnesses described it, quote, blowing up, end quote, and assumed it was a plane, but no wreckage was found in the field. Over the next few nights, they started to hear strange noises around their home. Quote, it sounded as if someone was going around the place, pounding on the siding and windows. Whatever it was, it must have gotten braver every night because, that no because the noise got louder every night. End quote. Mr. Rogers borrowed his father's shotgun. And that is a sentence I never thought I'd ever say in my life. And would run outside every time the banging started to see a broad-shouldered, six-foot-tall figure running away from the property. Details were hard to make out, but he was able to discern that whatever it was was covered in hair. It would always come around at a certain hour between 10 and 11.30 at night, Mr. Rogers stated. You could feel it coming somehow. It's hard to explain. The feeling would get stronger and stronger. When it got strongest, you knew something had to happen. Then the knocking would start. This happened every night for two or three weeks. Another thing, it smelled rotten, like dead animals or garbage, end quote. On one occasion, while Mrs. Rogers was doing the dishes, she saw the creature ducking down outside the window opposite the sink. Quote, but I was never exactly afraid of it, she stated. If it was going to hurt me, it would have that first night. I have no awareness or fear of, of it in the daytime. I'd even leave the doors open. Sometimes I'd put out the garbage and later it would be gone. My husband thought I was crazy trying to make friends like that, but I was pretty curious about it. The Rogers thought the creature was a gorilla. It stood on two legs, but had a tendency to run away on all four. And yet, they never found any tracks, even in the mud, suggesting that this being never made contact with the ground. The only tracks that they found on their property was made by something that was actually much smaller. 
They were around three inches across, and one of the feet seemed to be deformed a bit. Like, this 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 series of sightings is just, like, really fucking weird. Um, I, I don't know how to explain it other than, like, it's anomalous Bigfoot, and he brought his alien friend? I, you know, I'm just going with it. In an odd addendum, a small, quote, flying saucer toy, end quote, was found near the property. It didn't belong to her son, Keith, who showed no interest in it whatsoever. Instead, um, they actually took it out with the trash. But when Mrs. Rogers went out to look for the toy again, it was gone. Additional sightings of an unknown creature were reported around the county. The town was in a panic about the creature. It left the Rogerses alone after Mrs. Rogers' brother, Randy, organized a hunting party to find the creature. A conservation officer named William Woodall heard numerous encounter stories. One of the strangest came from a woman who lived on the east side of town. On the evening of August 14th, she was sitting on her front porch with her daughter and husband when she noticed two, quote, large balls of fire staring at them. Quote, from time to time, the balls of fire would turn and watch a passing car, then turn them back towards us, end quote. Soon, a second pair of objects joined the first. The family seemed mesmerized by them, though not wanting to go any closer. They stared at them for hours, the husband and daughter finally retiring at around 2 a.m. The wife watched as, quote, the thing behind the glowing balls went down on all fours, feeding like a dog. Then, at times, it would stand up and peer around, end quote. If you're confused by this statement, so am I, because they just threw it the fuck out there. She finally retired at 3.40 a.m., the phenomenon was still doing what it was doing out in the field. For the Burdine family, it was personal. Carter Burdine and his uncle Bill Burdine arrived at Carter's farm to find 60 of his chickens ripped apart. Not eaten, but ripped apart. And scattered along a path 200 feet from the coop, leading to the front yard. Immediately, they phoned Marshall Clonks, who arrived minutes later. As they surveyed the damage, all three men heard a noise coming from an area between the coop and the road. Clonks jumped into his car and drove slowly up the road. Bill Burdine walked close behind. The car was pulling away from him when a creature rose up from the ditch and dashed across the road. It moved so fast that they didn't even get a clear look at it. They did find where the creature had entered the property. They had destroyed part of his fence, trampling grass and weeds in the process. He traced the creature's movements to a pail that had cucumbers and tomatoes, which were being used to feed the hogs. It was now only half full. He first suspected his dog, but Carter Burdine remembered the night before he had heard someone, late at night, walking across his porch. The footsteps were heavy, and there was an awful odor, too. The creature would be caught returning, standing in the doorway to the chicken coop. It was tall, 
its shoulders coming to the top of the door. They ended up shooting the creature, though there was no indication that it had ever been wounded. In total, the Burdine family lost approximately 170 out of 200 chickens. Chickens that were never eaten, merely torn apart. The sighting in Indiana reinforced the paranormal nature of some of these sightings. Fireballs and lights in the sky were quite common. On July 26, witnesses spotted a fireball hovering over a large tree near the railroad crossing where Ellis Miner had his encounter with the being. The following three nights were filled with reports of multicolored lights coming from the north end of River Road. They watched as these lights interacted, communicating with each other using flashes. They were so small, no, no larger than the size of an apple. On July 30th, the Shade family described a disc-shaped craft hovering over a bluff for nearly three hours. The object turned a red color before disappearing upward. On the night of August 5th, Pat Howard, a previous Momo witness, and a friend were camping in the Harrison's backyard, on the lookout for the creature. They sipped on coffee when they heard a strange voice say, I'll take a cup of your coffee. The voice was very similar to the one that told the Harrisons to stay out of the woods. An immediate search failed to find the culprit. As we ventured back into Missouri, a group of Texas sailors were searching the area when they observed an orb of light explode, which produced the familiar stench of the creature. Pennsylvania was another location in the summer of 72 where the UFOs were more than a little hairy. Reports of luminous spheres, sometimes in groups, were common throughout many areas of the state. There was an odd feature in more than a few of these cases. Sometimes, the UFOs would be seen ejecting a metallic substance that resembled very thin aluminum foil that had been shredded. This particular substance was found outside of Latrobe in some trees and in grass. Additional material was found outside of Greensburg on high-tension power lines. Sightings of hairy humanoids soon followed. The residents of Humphrey Road, outside of Greensburg, started to hear unusual sounds coming from the woods. Some were startled by high-pitched screams, while others heard something heavy running through the forest. In May, on the opposite side of the woods, two witnesses reported seeing large creature, a large creature covered in black hair chasing two dogs in the vicinity of a cemetery. The witnesses found two large piles of fresh dung in the same area where the encounter had taken place. Similar droppings were found near the University of Pittsburgh at Greensburg campus by a security guard. And two weeks prior to that, found odd footprints in that area too. Humphrey Road continued to be a major player in the activity that year. On July 4th, during a fireworks display taking place at the GB department store, a glowing object appeared in the sky and shot off in the direction of the cemetery where the two dogs had been chased. It made a 90-degree turn before moving off. Later that month, on the 18th, 
A couple living near Humphrey Road saw two anomalous lights in the trees. They resembled two giant fireflies, but oddly their glow never dimmed. They were constantly illuminated, ruling out any possibility of something natural. In the fall near Latrobe, witnesses came forward with reports of odd chimpanzee and gorilla-like creatures. On October 1st, travelers on Route 30 reported that a large gorilla-like creature crossed the road in front of them. Around the same time, a family living near the cemetery on Humphrey Road heard movement and scratching from their front porch. One family living in a rural area on Champion Mountain was visited repeatedly by a Bigfoot-like creature over the course of a couple of months. Their first inclination was that the creature was a bear, given that they never really got a great look at it. The earth trembled each time it showed up. Thump, 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 thump. The family always knew when it was around. Footprints were also found in an area where the creature was spotted walking down a road. That time, they were shot at. The most startling encounter occurred early one morning. It was around 3 a.m., and one family member was returning home with a friend. Once the car was stopped and the headlights turned off, it started to move back and forth violently. Something was pushing it to and fro. The whole affair ended a couple of minutes later, and the car had been moved a fair distance from where it had been stopped. So you got Bigfoot not happy with the parking situation. I get it. Gotta move them. Makes me think that Bigfoot would be great. Um, like, you remember that show Parking Wars on on uh, A&E? I think if Bigfoot were out there serving uh, tickets to people, they'd pay up. They wouldn't be, you know, like, copying an attitude down at the... Um, down at the DMV and stuff, they wouldn't do it. They just wouldn't do it. They also claim that the creature was responsible for killing their dog. I will spare you the details on that particular incident. Uh, the creature was also responsible for knocking a man unconscious. He had wandered away during a house party and was discovered unconscious with a swollen face. In the hospital, he claimed that it wasn't an accident, but that someone had hit him. Have you ever considered pranking Bigfoot? Well, one guy did. In early October 1972, in Silent Invasion by Stan Gordon, he documents a case in which a guy, given the pseudonym Anthony, did just that. It was a few weeks before Halloween. Anthony and an unnamed friend were headed to another friend's house when this tall guy, dressed in a gorilla costume, walked out in front of them. Anthony decided to prank them, so he innocently pinned the person between their car and a parked car nearby. When the creature put their hands on the hood of the car, they quickly learned that it wasn't a guy in a costume. This creature was standing directly under a streetlight, and it was absolutely huge. Anthony quickly backed the car up, and the Bigfoot moved off. An excited Anthony drove to a friend's house immediately, and he started to tell eight or nine teenage girls his story. Midway through, 
everyone noticed the creature walking down the street, approaching them. Immediately, they all began to panic and rushed inside. Anthony broke the glass of the front door to get inside. He ended up in the hospital from uh, profuse bleeding. That just goes to show you, never prank Bigfoot. Just don't do it. Bigfoot will find you. And you're going to, like, burst through glass just to get away from him. I get it. Other anomalous experiences would plague Anthony. On more than one occasion, a, quote, floating grayish glowing figure, end quote, like that of a man, though not fully formed, would appear in his room. He could be heard yelling at the creature, get away! Even his mother had an encounter with a similar entity a year later. She described it as a silvery being, human-like, with broad shoulders. In place of hands were claws, and the apparition ended before it reached its feet. Later, after seeing a report about the Pascagoula abduction on the news, she confided to her husband that the silvery being looked exactly like that. There were other UFO sightings in Pennsylvania that year, including that of an oblong triangular object, 40 to 60 feet in length, with a pyramidal dome on top, spotted on Route 993 near Harrison City. It was just sitting there on the ground. The witness became incredibly frightened by this experience and sped away. The Pennsylvania Bigfoot UFO flap would continue on into 1973 and 1974. Uh, we did cover the 73 portion on the last episode. Throughout much of August, reports of Momo died down. The skeptics came out to dismiss the sightings as a hoax or as a bear. Conservation experts noted that bears had been coming north from Arkansas, I guess. They cited the June 28th encounter of Opal Anderson, who was visiting her mother at around 7.30 p.m. Mary Pearl's dogs started to bark with the kind of passion that lets you know that something is in your backyard. She described a small bear that ran into the woods of Marzoff Hill. Conservation officer Gus Artis spent two hours searching the area behind their home, but was never able to find it. On September 8th, though, the creatures seemed to return. James Davis had gone to pick up his wife from work at a local nursing home. On the return trip to the house, Davis saw a large figure standing next to his truck, which is parked near the highway. The figure took off, most likely startled by the appearance of Davis's car. He wasn't sure what he'd seen, so he just continued on, turning around and coming back home. Their son recalled hearing a strange noise, and after going out to investigate, they found the side view mirror broken and a mysterious, quote, gray stain, end quote, on the side of the truck and below the mirror. The next morning, a large half-eaten pear was found on the opposite side of the road, and it was hypothesized that the creature had thrown the pear at the mirror, causing the damage, which may have also been the sound his son had heard. A footprint was also discovered in the sand next to the truck by George Minor. 
this is the last official report of Momo, the Missouri monster. But the legend of the creature is still kept alive today, even to the chagrin of the residents of Louisiana, Missouri. There is one final oddity I'd like to point out, and it's one that Lyle Blackburn found while researching for his book, Momo, The Strange Case of the Missouri Monster. Blackburn had met Judy Gustin at a Bigfoot event in Oklahoma. They shared a mutual interest in the Boggy Creek case, which had taken place in Falk, Arkansas, in the early 1970s. As they talked, she mentioned the frozen body of a Bigfoot she had seen in Missouri in 1964. At first, Blackburn assumed she was talking about the famed Minnesota Iceman exhibit run by Frank D. Hansen, but what she described was very different. Judy explained that she, her husband, and a group of their friends were on the way to a local lake for the day. In a shopping mall in the town of Joplin, they saw a large crowd of people gathered around a trailer which had something on display. The signs advertised the missing link frozen in a block of ice, but what she described was a was in very DIY uh, uh, kind of situation. Inside a block freezer, frozen in a block of ice, was a hair-covered figure that resembled a man. His face was frozen in a, in a grin, revealing human-like teeth. The hair was brown with shades of orange, and unlike most Bigfoots, it had a slight neck and was devoid of hair in the abdomen, hands, and face. What made it believable was the fact that it looked like the body had just been placed in this freezer and frozen using a hose from a tap. Again, it's very DIY in its presentation. It also smelled horrendous, meaning that it had been dead for a period of time before it was frozen. One dollar got you ten minutes with the creature, and Judy ended up going in quite a few times. She was amazed and totally convinced it was real. When asked again if she was sure that this wasn't the Minnesota Iceman, she said no, because it had what appeared to be a bullet wound in its chest, and it had allegedly been shot in Louisiana, Missouri. Thank you all so much for listening to this episode. Here's a reminder that OurStrangeGuys.com is back up and you can find links to all our social media pages, our Patreon, and our Tee Public store. Um, it's all right there. Special thanks to Floats for the use of their song UFO as the theme for this podcast. Special thanks to Spencer for making sure we run smoothly behind the scenes, to Megan Lagerberg for our logo, and the great Desdemona for the t-shirt designs in our Tee Public store. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or on Mars Off Hill in Louisiana, Missouri. In gray, we trust. Yeah.